Hi, it's Lou. I just wanted to let you know about the Patreon membership I've started. It's a great community where I'm able to offer members privileges, like helping you to write letters and other advocacy activities that I can help with. And it's a place where you can offer suggestions for episode topics and guests. It only costs a minor amount each month, but it will help me to keep this podcast going and allow us to work together to help our kids, students, clients, the square pegs essentially, and that's the reason we're all here after all. Am I right? The link is in the show notes and the Facebook group. It's patreon.com forward slash square peg round hole and the word hole is spelt with a W. Then as many of you know as well, I have a Facebook page, again spelt square peg round hole with a W for the hot word hole. There's a private group, there's a public page and more recently I have launched a new website and the URL for that is www.squarepegroundhole.com.au. On the new website, there'll be transcripts, there'll be resources, episodes, advocacy projects, and obviously a link to Patreon and more. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you all so much for your support. Bye for now. Thanks so much to Trinette, my latest Patreon member. Thank you so much for joining. And also to Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. I'm very, very appreciative. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. It's Lou here, your host. Today we're talking to Christina Keeble and Christina is somebody that I came across in my travels and decided it would be a great um, opportunity if we could have her on the podcast. So Christina is going to talk to us about a number of different things in relation to neurodiversity, Um, but just to explain who she is, first of all, I just wanted to let you know that she's actually a neurodivergent person herself, um, and she's on a bit of a mission to educate, collaborate, support, and uplift families and carers, individuals and professionals who are neurodivergent themselves who support a neurodivergent individual or who may just be looking to understand more about neurodiversity. So she brings her own lived experience, her own life experience to the table. And in this discussion, we talk about a lot about authenticity, self-identity and self-esteem. We talk about her role as a specialist um, teacher and where this has led her along her life. We talk about PBIS or PBL which is positive behavior for learning and 
what that's doing in education in Christina's experience. She's got some really interesting things to explain about that. We talk about um, advocating in school, obviously leads into that. And then there's a number of webinars that Christina's organisation run. Um, There's interception and co-regulation, there's PDA, there's ADHD-related education. And then we also talk about the PEAK Centre, which is an organisation that she and Rebecca Perkins have created to support the neurodivergent community. So she's got lots to say. It's all really fascinating and it gives us yet another expert and person who can help us. So let's have a chat with Christina. Welcome to the podcast, Christina Keeble. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here, Lou. So am I. I really, really, truly am. Like we were just having a chat before, weren't we? And it was fun. Yeah, Um, I think we could chat all day. (laughs) Yes, I can tell straight away we're going to get on really well. Um, And and it was quite funny, really, wasn't it? We're having internet problems and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, this woman's been on Maggie Dent's (laughs) podcast. I'm sure it was really professional being with the ABC and everything and then she comes in on mine and then I've got my bed and my dog in the background. <laughs> no, no, so oh good. It's just me, okay, it's just little old me. Um, okay, Christina, let's just get straight into this. So I'm going to start by asking you the first icebreaker question. So the question is when the pandemic is over, this COVID pandemic, and we can travel again, where do you want to go and why? I mean, the pandemic's still here, but the freedoms are starting to appear now, aren't they? So, yeah, what, what's your thoughts on travel? Yeah, well, actually, interestingly, um, when it came to answer, and you very kindly gave me a list of questions uh, ahead of time, which allows me to prepare, and I need that. Um, And interestingly, out of all of them, I found the icebreaker questions the most challenging to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was the last thing I looked at. I went through all the ones that I recognize easily and I went back and I almost missed them. And I thought, no, I need to have an answer. Nothing was coming to me. And I I find I guess I wanted to say that because I find it really interesting. I've heard before um, from other neurodivergent individuals that you know, when you're in like a new setting or you're in a training and they do those icebreaker questions, how anxiety inducing it is for them. And this actually wasn't anxiety inducing, but I did struggle to answer them more, which I don't have an exact reason why, but I have come up with answers. So I will tell you. (laughs) So the, um, I had a long think about it. Uh, You can probably hear, I have a weird accent. I'm originally from the U S and I've, haven't been back to the US in a really long time. I've been fortunate and had family come out to see me. However, now that I have my children and they're getting older, my dream would be to go to Hawaii, which is not where I'm from, but I've always wanted to go there. And I'd love to have some of my family meet me halfway and have like a big family reunion. I just have really felt uh, that lack of connection. from my family. Uh, and it's funny because I haven't seen them for a couple of years anyway. However, just knowing that you can't go and you're mm. not either allowed to go, or if you go, you may not get back that added to it and just made it, it compounded 
um, the reality, I think. So I, you know, I don't know that it'll be happening next year, but it is definitely my next big trip on my list. Very interesting. And so interesting to hear that about the questions too. I'm going to keep that in mind because I've had other people say, oh, I found, found, you know, I find this quite confronting. So (laughs) that's good for me to know. And I think that's totally fair enough. You know, it's meant to be fun, but you know, I can understand, you know, why it's a bit these weren't confronting it was just because because I think the reason other neurodivergent people in those settings they're put on the spot and so the beauty of this is that that I've had time to think and prepare um it just for some reason it I think it was more because the questions are not directly related to my passion and my thing and I think I, I had to put extra thought into it so for me the questions aren't confronting it was just I literally drew a blank Yes, yes. Oh, no, that's, that's, well, that's a learning we all, we all got from it. So that's good. Um, so let's go to the second one. If you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, okay. So I thought a lot about this. There's a lot of really cool superpowers. Um, but essentially, again, this is the one that I would choose. It's coming from a point of where we're at now, I think, as a global society. Um, And we've had this turmoil, this trauma, this unrest, this uncertainty. And I know at least uh, in the US where I'm from and definitely here in Australia, there is this divisiveness at the moment, which is Mm. definitely splitting our humanity into two. And it's, it's extremely distressing, I think, for everybody. And so I guess that's where my superpower, if I could choose one, I would love to be able to have the power um, to help other people see or experience for a moment what the other is experiencing. So when there is that, that you know, you versus me opinion, um, you know, allowing them to actually be in the shoes of someone else for a moment and experience the their perspective on it. And, and I am referring to it in, at the moment in terms of the pandemic, but it can also go into the realm of disability and you know helping other kids understand and you know helping teachers understand the parents and vice versa um there's so much divisiveness i find it personally distressing i'm extremely um i'm trying to think of a better word but i'm extremely sensitive i think to Mm -hmm. other people's reactions and and i've always wanted just to everybody to get along (laughs) and I think that would you know that that understanding would be so that would be the superpower I'd choose I love that I really love that it's so true it is so distressing um to think that others cannot put themselves in the shoes of of somebody who may be experiencing life differently um and the final question is what is your connection to the square peg round hole concept you can answer this quite briefly because I'm going to ask you a next one, a question next. But you know, obviously, you're here, so t- why don't you tell us? <laughs> uh, and I just love the title. I got to say, it was such Thank a perfect, you. perfect title for this. Um, essentially, essentially, that was what I—that's what I felt my whole life, um, probably until recently. Definitely growing up um, as an as someone who was different and undiagnosed until late in life. Hmm. We've got stuff in common. Okay, <laughs> so let's move to the next question, which is let's talk about you. Oh, we need to 
know more about you. What was like, what was life like for you growing up and how did you get to where you are today? It's a big question. <laughs> um, look, I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this. I've realized growing up, I, I was really lucky in a lot of ways. So I've always known that I was different and I definitely, it, I definitely remember it starting in primary school. I remember, you know, it would have been year one, I think maybe it was roughly year one. It wasn't prep or over there, we call it kindergarten. Um, and I remember watching everybody else to see how they played and what they did and how they responded. And I was almost hyper aware of being different and I was hyper aware of not wanting to say the wrong thing that would make me stand out as different or make, you know, have me be picked on. And, and that first memory goes back to probably year one, um, year, it would have been in the next couple of years because I moved schools a couple of times and it's, uh, it would have been before year three. I remember watching the kids play on the playground and the girls were chasing the boys and then tagging them. And then the boys were chasing the girls. And I remember just standing there watching, figuring out what was going on and going, okay, I, I don't know. Somehow I got involved in the game. And I remember just stopping and going, I don't know why they're doing like in my head, I don't know why they're doing this. This isn't fun. And just walking away. I realized I was in my head a lot as a kid. Um, I also have this, memory of and it's funny because I don't have a lot of memories but I have some pivotal ones and I again on the playground there was this little like corner where there was a tree and it was quite a nice I don't know a little area and that was where everybody always went to play house and so there was a group and I always wanted to play and I would start to get involved and there was someone was always taking charge and they'd be like, you're going to be the mom, you're going to be the dad, you're going to be the kid. And then I think they made me the cat or the pet or something. And I was like, but I don't want to be the pet. And, and I just remember getting really frustrated and leaving. <laughs> like I couldn't get the role that I wanted, you know, so, so I just didn't engage. Um, and as I grew older and, and went through school um, in particular, I suppose, uh, middle, so we have middle school in the US, so middle school, which is year six, seven, and eight, and then into high school, I was very aware of how I dressed, how I acted, because over there we don't have uniforms, um, and doing everything to blend in again and not stand out. In high school, I, I was what I call a fringer. So I would, I didn't have a lot of close friends. I'd only, I'd say in my life at one time, I had one, maybe two very close friends, but I had a lot of acquaintances. And in high school, that was protective because um, I did one sport, which kept me in touch with that group. And I just kind of like fringed all the groups. Um, I was what in, I grew up in um, the eighties and nineties and um, I was what they said back then I was tracked as a gift, uh, gift academically gifted. Oh, yeah. um, and so I also see in hindsight how in high school, middle school and high school in particular, where, um, you know, you're when you're going through adolescence, that was a protective factor, because the way it was then was all the kids were tracked together. So all the gifted kids tended or the the academically high achieving kids tended to take the same classes. Then they had the generalist classes and then there was the remedial classes. And so essentially 
the only times there was that intermingle of students was things like PE or lunch um, and things like that. And I can see how that was a protective factor for me growing up. And um, it just happened that my brain worked out the system of how to pass tests. And there was a lot of focus then on, well, I suppose like now on academic achievement. Um, and my brain just did it. So I, I ended up going to, you know, uni, loved uni. Um, and when I was doing uni, I started, I started in um, my first degrees in psychology. And I was in the process of enrolling to do in the States a master's in um, uh, social work. So I was going to become a psychologist. And to do that, I had to do some volunteering. And I volunteered at this special needs preschool. And that's where I first heard uh, and learned and worked with kids on the spectrum, autistic kids. And there was a variety of disabilities, but I literally fell in love with that world. And it actually completely changed my life. Um, when I moved to Australia, I actually switched uh, trajectory. So instead of becoming a psychologist uh, in Australia, I came on a student visa and I studied teaching. So I studied primary teaching and I did my master's in special ed. And then I started working in um, uh, autism specific schools in New South Wales and specialist settings ever since then. And I I don't know. It was like when I discovered it, I just kind of felt at home and I ended up being, I don't know, pretty good at connecting with the kids. And I realize now, <laughs> yeah, I realize now because people, you know, people would say like, oh, how did you know that was? And I was like, I can't explain it. You just, you know, it takes time, but you spend enough time and you just, I can tell what they need or when they're about to melt down and things like mm. that. Then, um, you know, life goes on and I met my amazing husband and I had a family and I stopped teaching and I'm blessed that I, I got to spend time being a mom. And when my first started school is when um, she first got diagnosed and she got diagnosed um, as autistic and it just all started to click, I think. And mm. then my second, my son quickly afterwards followed with diagnosis. And at this time, I was still in this mindset um, of the way that I'd been trained, the way that I'd been taught. And that was to see, I guess, from a behaviorist approach. Yes, I want to talk more about that. Yes. And then, you know, and, and that's, you know, where I was still coming from then, but it was on this journey of walking beside them in their diagnoses that led me to my diagnosis. And I'm blessed that before 40, my life came full circle, so to speak. And when I got diagnosed, everything made sense. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. That's kind of what brought me to where I am now. And my kids' needs um, didn't allow me to return to the classroom. Uh, which I tried several times and it's just, you know, family comes first. And yeah. so that's what led me to, you know, I guess do what I do now, which is, um, you know, more of a consultation type basis, uh, empowering and educating parents and teachers and, and supporting in a way that allows my schedule to be more flexible for my family. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, what an interesting journey. And there will be further questions that come from bits, as you're saying, bits along that there. I was thinking, oh, I've got a question about that. I've got a question about that. So this is great. So actually, the next one, the next question is about authenticity. 
So let's discuss authenticity, self-identity and self-esteem. Most neurodivergent people I speak to have a unique way of describing how they see themselves and I've just heard you alluding to that Mm. and, you know, where they fit in the world. How important is it for neurodivergent people to really know who they are and what they are about? Oh, it's such a good question. It, it is, it is, it, for me, it was life-saving and life-changing. Um, prior to my personal experience with diagnosis, not even, not even when I was with my kids along the journey, when it came to my diagnosis, I'd always said, I, I'm not for or against you know, diagnoses, you know, I understand the purpose they serve as far as funding and and getting support and all that. But I was always like, you know, it's a very uh, individual choice. However, I have a stance now and I am very pro diagnoses when we're talking about things such as being autistic and ADHD, which I am, I am both. Um, And the reason is, one, it's got to do with the view that I have about it. I don't see it as a disorder. So you will never, you know, I don't use that in, in the terms. I see it as a neuro difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a natural, for me, it's a natural variation in, in our species. So that combined with all of the understanding that when you really understand the differences that are because of your brain and how it's wired, you know, it, it, it gives you this perspective. And for me, it was empowering for me. So much made sense. I, I had just everything made sense. And I went, you know what? Oh my goodness. I'm not lazy. You know what? I'm, I'm someone who's been overloaded and over like trying to overachieve for too long and I'm, I'm pushed to burn out, you know, and, and, you know, it's allowed me one to have a different and a more positive and a more compassionate and loving view of myself. I've been able to forgive myself a lot, but also mm-hmm. I can model that for my children now. Um, and I'm now able to put the supports into place that I need because I now understand what I need and I don't have this negative lens of which I'm viewing things that my body is telling me I have to do, such as sleep a lot. Um mm-hmm. And I know that with my journey, you know, my family, my kids, my husband, myself, we had a good uh, three or four years where we were called a family in crisis. And it was because of just this mix of, you know, my kids needs and my needs and what I experienced well, what I anticipated would happen, you know, becoming a parent, what I expected versus the reality, you know, number one, society romanticizes, you know, having children way too much. And we're not honest enough about the the challenges to two young adults before they consider having a family. And um, my staff that I have, uh, I have a allied health center and we have quite a few amazing young female therapists. Um, Mm. Unfortunately, we don't have any young male ones at the moment, but I'm always like, listen, you have time. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. Don't expect perfection. (laughs) No. And it is not. Yeah. So, so there was that. And Mm. then the financial side of me not being able to go back to work the way that we anticipated 
plus the lens with which I was viewing the challenges as, you know, oh, behavior problems and, you know, they're really giving me a hard time and why are the strategies I'm putting in place not working and I should, you know, I had professionals that were trying to support me telling me, you need to be more consistent. You know how this works. Go back to basics, da, 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 all this stuff. And that went against my mom intuition. And that was counterproductive to that. And, and so I had my logical brain going, you know what you're doing. You got to do this, this, and this. Like, this is how the system works. You've, you've told this to parents for years. But my gut and my mom intuition was going, no. No, this this is not what they need. You need to do this and this and this. And then my logical brain's going, but you're going to spoil them and they're going to get control. And I'm, oh, it was this horrible. I know. I'm just sitting here like I'm just so busting to just say I cannot tell you how much I get it. Yes, we all. It happens to absolutely everyone, doesn't it? It does. And, and I remember, you know, and that term, you know, oh, you're, you're not being consistent enough. I, I got to a point where I was ready, like, I, I wouldn't, but I was ready to punch someone if they told me I wasn't being consistent enough. Like, you don't understand. I, you know, I've done all this. And, and what is the ultimate goal, do you think, for that approach? Is it about trying to sort of fix, fix the situation? It is. It's about, it's about, it was about trying to to fix the behavior, change or replace the behavior. And, you know, I don't know, as if that would somehow achieve this level of peace that, that I was, you know, seeking. And I guess prior to having kids, I never understood the other side of it. So whenever I was talking to parents before with behaviorist type approaches, I, and and the thing is, there is research to back the behavior stuff. It does make change. It is yes. very quick and effective. However, what it doesn't, what the research doesn't show us is, you know, it makes change, but to what expense, to what cost to that child's mental health, their mental health, their well-being, their self-esteem, you know, you know, and, you know, it's traumatizing for, for them or it's reducing their self-esteem or we're telling them through our actions of I'm only going to pay attention to you when you're doing the right thing you know what am I not saying in that moment I'm not saying that when you are not doing what I want to see I'm not going to support you I'm not going to look at you and give you attention until you're doing what I want you to do and, and that the mom side of me was like no this is wrong um, and as a teacher I never had that connection to anyone you know and and I, it's such an important, you know, thing. And we do need to look at the overall goal. Is it about compliance or is it really about supporting these kids to become their best selves and understand and support them through these physiological and psychological development that they're experiencing, you know, and, and with, you know, compassion and love and, and it's just, yeah, it's so counterintuitive to, I think, parents' intuition, you know? And yeah, so I'm a, it's, it was such a learning journey. And I literally did a 180, like completely changed. Um, and it was hard because then you have that judgment. Um, mm. You can get judgment from the outside world. Uh, you know, when I, the best, I always said I was the perfect parent when I didn't have kids. 
because I knew exactly what to do. Uh, but no, but when, you know, you're in public and, you know, I have my beautiful child who is obviously struggling, is physically hitting me and kicking and screaming and calling me names and saying these things and the looks you get, you know, you have to develop a thick skin and, um, and I know I've gone on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> no, <laughs> you you know what? I'm because this is what I do. I look ahead and I think mm, she's answered that question. She's answered that. Question. She's heading <laughs> to this question. So I'm, what I'm going to do is put all of these next three questions kind of into one, so that you can further expand on this. So I was going to ask you about the fact that you've worked in specialist education and what your thoughts are on inclusive education. I was also then going to talk to you about the sorts of things that are happening in school to neurodivergent students with inappropriate adjustments, exclusions via suspension and push out. And we know the latest figures have shown 80%, yeah, four out of five kids who are four and five years old are being suspended from school. And then I wanted to talk to you more about positive behavior for learning because this is definitely a hot topic at the moment so all those things kind of all go into one in a way but I was going to ask you about them separately can you talk more about behaviorism in school the effect it's having on the neurodivergent students definitely definitely and um, I guess that was where where I was going because the practices that um, I was taught so through my psychology degree through my special education degree Um, through all of my experiences, I actually was a teacher assistant before I became a teacher. Um, You know, so in those different environments, um, it was all behaviorist based, based on behavior principles and principles of change. And as I went through um, spending years in the classroom, you know, this positive behavior stuff started coming out. Uh, And at first, nobody really, you know, it didn't twig what what it was now that you know i'm on the other side of all of this it's essentially what the way i see it is it's a positive spin uh it's a great marketing ploy on yes behaviorist principles so you know back when i started and and i'm i'm not proud that i i was part of the problem uh but you know we would you know do things that, you know, you would never do today, such as try and stop a child stimming. You know, we, nobody ever said that was, you know, I never understood the importance of that. And I'm talking years and years ago. Or even recognizing what the stimming is. <laughs> yeah. Or even exactly, even recognizing the purpose of it. But if the parents were saying, you know, they didn't want their child to, to look different and stand out and, and, you know, then we were trying to support them with that. And now we realize how wrong that is. It's a self-regulatory behavior um, and, and a form of expression. Um, but with the positive behavior stuff, you know, instead of giving negative consequences, it's disguised as positive. Um, and the thing is, the negative is still there. It's just not explicit. Uh, so what the negative consequence is, it's the missing out on the reward. It's exclusion. It's, it's, you know, seeing others progress when the child who needs the most support and and developmentally doesn't have the ability to do it independently gets left behind. Um, I have personal experience with this with, you know, uh, my children. And I remember having this conversation with one of my children's former teachers. And 
they were they had implemented this positive behavior thing and so many whatevers they got some bracelet or something that was like a school thing and anyway my child was in prep and it was term three and had not once been recognized for in front of everybody else in the class had been recognized at this point in front of the assembly and things and my child who you know was always doing their best was saying you know it was noticing and saying it was becoming distressed to me and I had, you know, thought, oh, you know, because in my head, if I was a teacher, I'd be spacing it out. And, you know, so, you know, because you only get so many opportunities. And I actually, you know, wrote um, an email and said, just so you know, I expect my child to, to get one before the end of the year. And their response was, not everybody gets it and it's not meant to be easy. And I just was, once I calmed down, um, I... I quoted some of the disability discrimination legislation and brought to their attention that there is a reason and and these kids are in prep uh, and that, you know, it's more negative on their mental health and well-being and self-esteem and she will do it or I will take it further. And surprise, surprise, next award ceremony, they were presented with one. Um, I'm not a fan of it because, you know, it's, it's, it, it becomes competitive um especially when it's displayed on walls it should never be an open thing and you know what once my child got the bracelet they didn't care about it anyway it was like did you hear me ask that when I asked that question of Mona yeah and it's so funny because I was like the whole focus the only reason they cared was because everyone else had had one and they hadn't at that point they recognized and they thought they were doing something wrong and they were not, they were not, they, you know, and, and once they got it, they didn't care. And I, you know, and I just advocated and pushed and, and made sure that happened. Um, but I guess part of this and going back to the question that I kind of went off mm. on a tangent about was, you know, once I understood myself and my family, we had been in this, re the reason I actually went and got a diagnosis was because my mental health was really declining. Mm. And it was, I realized it was affecting everyone in the family and that the only way out of crisis, because we had no professionals um, who knew, and I don't mean this like with ego, but I, you know, because of my background, I had skills. So I, nobody had knew more than I did. And I needed that next level help. And the only way I could do it, I realized, is if I do it and I research it and find it out. So my diagnosis led to me to be able to get to a place where I could get supports and start to bring my family out of crisis through these learnings um, and a big shift away from behaviorist approaches. And, you know, when this is happening in schools, I 100% recognize and acknowledge this is not a teacher problem. This is not, I, I have been in this system and I would, you know, technically have been part of the problem and I didn't know better. I didn't yes. know different. The, the way that I got extra training was through the school that, you know, yes, I could do professional development sessions that I could choose, but we always had a budget and it was limited and you, you really only do two or three a year, right? And always you're trying to support the class you're in. So you're thinking of professional development that aligns with that, or the school provides it for you. And you know what? You don't get a choice what they provide. Now, we're also constrained in schools 
to the administration, it starts it starts there. A school culture starts at the top. However, the system is broken. It is a it is a nationwide. I would even go to say is global. I, I know the U.S. and I know here. It is a mm. problem with the system. The system was set up, you know, during a time around the industrial age when you know, that was getting started. Not everybody was a farmer, you know, and kids went to, you know, kids went to school to a certain point and some of them didn't go for it. Once they learned to read and write, some would go back to the farms, some would go into factories. Those who continued and did high school would potentially go to uni. They'd become the doctors. They'd become- And they were the round pegs of the time. Of the time. <laughs> and, and the problem is the system hasn't changed much since then. You know, and it's stuck and it doesn't suit society and it doesn't suit child development and the mental health of neuro. And I know it's not just neurodivergent children, but the mental health Mm, of kids is definitely um, at the expense of of the school. And it's something I'm really passionate about. And it's funny, I tried in the beginning when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, I tried and I thought, oh, I'll try and be an advocate because I know the school system. I know the inside of it. And and I always have to watch what I say because there's things that I... It's okay, yeah. So yeah. There's, there's things that I, I know, I know the great side of it and the passion of the teachers. And I then watch, have watched and I've been one of those teachers who through the system, you become disillusioned and broken and you're in survival mode and you're just trying to get through. And I've seen, you know, I had a principal and I know it, I know it was because of some students. But anyway, we got told as a whole staff one day we all got sat down because there was a family that was really struggling and I had one of the siblings. I was talking, you know, I had a great relationship with the child. I had a good relationship with with the, the mom and I, you know, was doing everything I could to get extra supports because I needed them to be able to support the kid properly. And, you know, I remember it was because of something I did and said behind the scenes that we got sat down as a whole staff and we were told you are not these kids advocates. You are their teachers. You do not advocate for the kids and their families. And at that moment, I just thought, how, how, keeping in mind, this person is no longer involved in the school system, thankfully, and which, (laughs) which is good to know. And I, I, uh, I would never disclose where or who or when that was, uh, but but I know that person is no longer there. And this was at, a, at least, it was over 10 years ago. Um, uh, and I know that the majority are not like that. It's just that I happen to be in one of the problem schools, you know. And it was not long after that many amazing teachers I was working with left, and including myself. I, I left to have my family. Um, and I tried to go back, not to that place, but to some others. And... I tried to support some families with advocating and I have done it, but it just got too personal and I I couldn't keep my emotions in check. (laughs) It is so hard. And, you know, and we're hearing about some of these strategies that that are happening. And I don't know if you know, but in New South Wales, there is a behaviour strategy. They are trying to make an attempt anyway to reduce the exclusions. Oh, wonderful. um, They're trying, but... My concern now, now that I have learnt so much more and hearing you yet again confirm it, um, they're using a behaviourist 
response. They have behaviour specialists. They run the PBIS program or whatever it is system. It's about teaching appropriate behaviours and they think that's going to work and we know it's not. So is it, at least they've got the intention to reduce, they can see it doesn't look good for them. You know, the advocacy work that we've done here in New South Wales has drawn attention to the fact that there's a way over-representation of students with disabilities in the suspension figures. But, um, and that's great because they've come out and said they want to reduce that, but it's the way they're going about it that I, I personally have real concerns about. But, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, we're halfway there. Well, we're not even halfway there. We're a little bit of the way there to even draw attention to it, I guess. Absolutely. And it, and it's because of this advocacy work like you and like others are doing that, you know, we have to stay loud about it. We have to yeah. be the squeaky wheel and not let it fall as in out of their minds because, you know, this system is underfunded. Um, the, you know, in, in whether, you know, that's, I know around the world, that's a problem. And so in order to keep it an issue, we need to keep being vocal about it, which is why I love things, you know, the advocacy work that you do. And that's why I like coming on to podcasts and talking about these things. Um, and it's great that I think the first step is changing the intention. And I think when we start with, okay, that shift in attention, that shift from, okay, these kids are giving me a hard time and are behaving behavior are becoming behavior problems. When we shift from that to, you know what, these kids are really struggling. They are struggling. How can I support them? That's step one, you know, and it's great when once that's happened now with the PBIS stuff, part of the problem I know is that it produces data and what does funding and governments love? They love data. The, the, the truth is this change that needs to happen is not a quick one. It's not that you can't collect data, but it's not going to produce results as quick. Again, PBIS will produce results, but at what cost? So, cause there still is that element of, negative consequences, exclusion, you know, through the missing outside. Well, yeah, and an assumption there's a choice factor here, which... Yeah. Exactly. And and when I read that, um, what's the number you put here? Uh, 80% of four and five-year-old students suspended from school have a disability. It makes me sick. It makes me angry. And mm, Me too. I don't understand and, and how there's such a gap between... And, and I don't get... Like, I love early childhood. I started in early childhood right? I think it's most early childhood places are so nurturing and, you know, and, and they're really looking after the whole child. And then there's this jump to school where it's almost like, okay, we've filled that bucket for you. Now it's time for you to sit, listen, and learn, you know, and it's, it's, it's such a big jump. And not only that, but it goes against child and brain development. We are literally asking kids in school to do things that, and this is without kids with disabilities, I'm talking kids in general, that they cannot physically do. Their brain development is nowhere near there. Their main source of learning is play and their bodies need to move. And, you know, brains don't, really our brains are always developing, but as far as when you look at brain development, it stops around the age of 25, roughly. Um, and interestingly, what I recently learned is that the final part of our brain to kind of finish is the prefrontal lobe cortex, which guess what is what controls impulses. Okay. That's a 25. 
if our ability to control as a mother of an 18 year old son trust me (laughs) I know sorry so I've got a child that's just entering adolescence and I've been so focused on like the early years and all of a sudden puberty's here and I'm like oh no and I'm like how can if at 25 their brain is potentially not done consolidating impulse control how can we ask a five-year-old it's just it just seems nuts doesn't it it's just nuts and these kids are in kindy, exactly. They are five years old. It's, it's just nuts. Yeah. No Look, way. it's a huge hurdle. It's a huge mountain of dysfunction that we have to try and uh, overcome. And I know, like you said, it's it's going to take a really long time. It's not, probably not going to happen in our lifetimes. But at least if we start the process and we all come together and work together, I just had... Um, yeah Samantha Nuttall on on the podcast recently and she just kept saying all the way through we just don't need to come together we just don't need- <laughs> but, but and it's exactly true right. we do. And if we could it would be wonderful yeah to have the right approach together yeah and I know it's so hard like I do think that you know there are amazing teachers out there and I think the more that teachers and parents unite and you know they're working from the inside and we're working from yeah. the outside you know that is the way that we can make change yes yes I agree yes we've got to all work together and come from top and bottom and and, and left and right and all come in together to make those policy makers those who are making the decisions understand oh okay I'm on the wrong track uh, you you won't know but I've just sent this huge package to uh, the federal education minister here uh, Alan Tudge is his name um you know, with Mona Delahook's books and all the research that people like Professor Linda Graham and all of the, and, you know, awesome. and a huge package and, and a lot of um, testimonials from our listeners who are listening to us right now to try and just, I know he probably won't read a lot of it, but to just try to get, because we need those people to have the mind shift because it's not going to happen without them at least thinking, mm, there might be something, we might want to change something here. <laughs> just have a bit of a thought. Look, anyway, so let, let's keep moving. Um, my next lot of questions are about you and your um, professional life. Um, so recently I attended your interception and co-regulation webinar and it was really, it was awesome. Um, and so, yeah, really good, really good. I haven't attended anything like that before and I'm obviously recommending it to anyone who asks me about my experience with it. Um, you also run webinars and professional development. Could you tell us a bit more about these, what the service that you provide and what you, the education that you're providing for people, the audience, who it's for, what you do in that, please? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I, I like you said, I do webinars um, and those, so the, the webinars I originally started focusing on teachers because I was trying to to make a change. Um, and I just kept getting more and more parents. And I was like, yeah, of course you can come, but you realize it's geared for teachers. Then as my kids got diagnosed and I got diagnosed, I started to bring in more personal stories. And I, I realized also that the best way is to, to educate both. You know, so so my anything I run, unless it's professional development within an organization or a school, is designed for uh, parents, carers, um, support workers, teachers, uh, early childhood educators, OTs, speeches, psychologists, anyone that professionally or personally supports 
um, a neurodivergent individual. And to be honest, some of the concepts I talk about, like interoception and co-regulation, they apply to all kids. Uh, so, so really, um, yeah, I, it's not, um, it, it could be open as well. So, so that is, I guess, my main audience. And generally, when I do things, I've got 50-50. I've got 50% parents and carers and 50% teachers or professionals, which is really wonderful uh, to see. Now, um, the other thing I do are in-person seminars. Um, so this COVID has really thrown out the yeah, last two years, but I, I had been, um, doing along with Rebecca Perkins for my special child, the, um, ADHD and demand avoidance national tour, uh, starting next year. I'm super excited together. We are doing a, um, a national tour on emotional dysregulation. And I was so excited. <laughs> I can see it. And that's so good. Because I think it's so, we do these in person and it's great because then we answer questions and whatnot. Um, I also do parent consultations. Uh, and so I offer them online. I also um, have recently, we've recently opened National Peak Center, which is here in Cranbourne, Victoria. Uh, next year, we're going to be opening our second center, which should be Werribee side of Melbourne. Yeah, tell us about that because I, I want to know more about the Peak Centre, yeah. Yes, so the National Peak Centre is essentially a passion project that Rebecca Perkins and I have come together on. Um, we both realised we had the same vision and it was to create centres where uh, families can get support for diagnoses, um, therapies, um, but then support also beyond that and not just families but throughout the lifespan. And we wanted to create centers that had pro-neurodiversity approach, um, centers that were anti-ABA, and that the focus of and the training of the therapist was grounded in that of connection, emotional safety, and relationships. Uh, and we, you know, essentially we were wanting to create what we didn't have when we were going through the experiences with our kids. Um, Rebecca herself is a neurodivergent individual with neurodivergent kids as am I. And, you know, we both had less than favorable experiences when, when you come into our center, you know, um, those of us who are neurodivergent are very open about it and everyone's neurodiversity is celebrated. Um, and it's, it's part of our culture and it's a, you know, it's we're, yeah. And so we also have created a unique role, um, Called the support specialist so you know the the kids or the adults will have their therapist so their ote or their uh, speechy or you know whatever it is um however we've created something called a support specialist who takes an overarching view of that individual so be it a child or an adult of their little ecosystem so, you know, their parents or their main carers or their supports, and they support them in those areas as well. Uh, because, you know, I know when I was taking my kids, you know, they would be talking about my child, but then, you know, I was having, you know, situations, sibling challenges or challenges with, you know, my younger child who hadn't been diagnosed yet. And, you know, myself, I was struggling and I just needed someone to to work stuff out with. And this is where this role comes into place, which we found is really, we're getting really positive feedback 
on it. And our current support specialist is a social worker and uh, she's amazing. Um, yeah, I also, the other thing I do is I, I develop resources. So um, I've just recently self-published uh, my first children's book. It's called Alpacas Don't Worry. And oh, yes, I've seen that. Yeah, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a rhyming book, but it's actually to be used as a resource and it's got um, some information in there uh, and activities that can be used between either the therapist and the child or, or the parent and the child. And I also have created a body signals book uh, which again is a resource. It, it teaches the kids about interoception, but it also provides a resource about them and their body signals that they can then take with them to different settings and things. So those are kind of, that's kind of what I do. It's a variety. It keeps my brain going. <laughs> can I just, yeah, I love it. Can I just ask you a little bit oh. more about that? Um, Cause I'm thinking things when you talk, I'm thinking all the time. So first question that comes into my head is, I often get asked um, p- about advocacy or an advocate. So uh, we talk, the word advocacy, I guess we could talk about that all day, but yeah. I, what, what people say they don't have, this is what I hear anyway, is somebody to sort of help them to, to go through this whole process that we've been talking about today and from our own personal experiences. We had our own journeys and it was hard, right? And oh, yeah. I think a lot of people don't feel that they are skilled or that they have the abilities, which is fine. Not everyone's good at being assertive and being the squeaky wheel, you know. So is there some sort of support in the peak centres for families in that way? And then the second thing is about, I've just written down here, school refusal, and I know that's not the right term, but school can't and school... Kids are having so much difficulty even going to school these days. This is a growing problem and I know COVID has really impacted on that as well do you find are you seeing that come through as well so advocacy and school refusal yeah 100% 100% so so with advocacy um yes so that is again where that that um support specialist role comes into play so so we've now got it structured where they through experience so this is our first year open um, and right, yeah. I was filling the support specialist role until recently, and I was doing it because I wanted to figure out what was needed really when, when I handed over the role. And mm-hmm. what I figured out is the support specialist needs to be the first point of contact. So everyone who comes gets a free 30 minute session as part of our intake. Um, and then they get, you know, they meet their therapists and everything. Yes, we do support with advocacy. So we've had, it's very individual, obviously. Um, we've had therapists be able to attend meetings. I've attended and um, advocated at the time it was COVID. So they were through Zoom. Um, the, the support specialist herself um, is able to. Now, when things get beyond our ability, yeah. obviously, or yeah. our, our scope of knowledge, we support them in connecting them with, with what they need. And that's where the support specialist, again, comes in. And we're acquiring a lovely um, bunch of resources in our area as far as advocacy, people and groups and everything, um, but, but maintaining that connection and contact with them. And it is a huge part of our role um, with with a lot of our families actually and it's so important because that's the that's what we're wanting we're wanting the families that when they come here they go okay 
I'm confused about something, I know they will support me. And if they can't, which I we would never go beyond our ability, but if we can, we will help them find out who can. Yeah. So fantastic. Wow. This is so good. I can't wait for people to hear more about that. Seriously, that's um very well, it's I only care about helping people access. That's what I'm why I've done this myself is to do a bit like what you just said, to just try and put people in contact with um, where they can get the help that they're so desperately crying out for. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Giving them those connections and and you don't, you know, until you're in it, you may not have any previous knowledge on, you know, I didn't on advocacy or anything. And, and as far as the, the, the other thing we've noticed, especially, so we are in Victoria, Melbourne, so we're classed as uh, Metro. So we, you know, our families were the ones in the longest lockdown. I'm lucky I live regional. So there were times when Melbourne was locked down where my house wasn't. Um, but the families we've been supporting um, have been the ones who have been in this, you know, lo- most lockdown city in the world. Um, and we saw very clearly, we saw the shift. We saw the shift happen from the main focus of our appointments was let's say related specifically to OT or specifically to, you know, whatever the discipline was to mental health. And we saw it and there were a handful in a very short period of time of um, mental health crises with some clients where we had to sit down and and really figure out how to approach and to support in general. Um, And and it was, you know, clients, these the couple that I'm thinking about, they were, um, you know, 12, young, young, 12 to 25 year olds in there uh, and the youth and mental health was not what was the issue originally. And it had then come to the mm, forefront. And yes. so so we'd had to shift our approach. And and um, so there's that is definitely impacting a lot of families right now. And we are now back um, in school. And the amount of families that we're hearing with the school camp days is huge. And, and I myself, one of my children is a school camp child. And it's been it's it's been a struggle at home as well. And um, it's 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 so hard. I've I've got another child who during this time, so during these past uh, two eighteen months, two years with the pandemic, we actually moved them out of the school system into virtual school. Now, uh, one of my children did really well during online learning once they found the system, once they figured it out, and so. We did that for their mental health because the being in school was more detrimental and damaging to their mental health. And we've had since they started virtual school, Victoria, which here is still the public system, but it's online. Yeah, we've got that too. It's called distance education in New South Wales. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. Yeah. Yes, it would be. Yeah, I know every state has it. So since they've started that, their mental health has just flourished and They are definitely, you know, however, this child of mine is academically geared and motivated and it suits them. It is a very small percentage of kids that it suits. Um, And I'm lucky I have one of them. My other my other child needs to go. And it's just such a challenge with the school can't. And um, the schools shutting down all the time is impacting it. The 
the stress around, you know, I'm seeing a lot of anxiety around stress and fear of getting sick or, you know, it's just mm, missing. Yes, from oh, it's, it's absolute, yeah. yeah, minefield and it's just really causing so many problems. I'm just hearing so much more about the kids that can't go to school. They just, they just can't do it. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's definitely the system, you know, in general is not designed you know is not designed to support the social emotional development of children which it it definitely needs to um especially at the moment you know the the healing and the the feeling safe again is what the kids need to feel and yeah then there's the push for academics and uh, it's just it's just too much at the moment for most kids and i do find a lot of families end up having to seek alternative schooling options or homeschool for their children in order to preserve and and help their mental health flourish. Yeah, I know so many families in that position as well. And, um, okay, so I was now going to ask you a little bit about your mentors, books, resources, and anything else that you may have not shared yet that you really want to share with listeners because I can see that for a start, this episode's going to have about a million resources connected to it because <laughs> I connect them all on my website so people can access, you know, all the things you're talking about and um, contact you and all of that. Um, yeah, so tell us, is there anything else that you want to share and are there people or mentors or books or whatever that you recommend that we look at? Oh, def- definitely. That that could be a whole show in itself, so I won't go a little bit open, a little bit of an open question. list. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know you did mention my interception and co-regulation webinar and I get, so I do several, several ones, but that one, I, I just, I feel like it's one of the most important because it is the missing pieces. It is, if anybody has ever worked as a teacher or worked with kids or kids with disabilities, it is the missing pieces. I, I, when I learned about it, I had so many light bulb moments going, that's why this wasn't working. And those concepts, you know, and, and I just think that's really important, even if it's not my webinar, you know, like just yeah. understanding. At least look into interception and co-regulation. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and so as far as there is an amazing, actually, free resource um, that the Department of Education for South Australia has on interception. Um, and I've looked through it, you know, parents could could learn a lot from it as well, even though it's on the Department of Ed. And I got to say, they they have a lot of good resources on there. Um, well, actually, um, the South Australian Department of Education are one of the, uh, with New South Wales, are the only two states that seem to be actually trying to do something about helping neurodivergent students to access education. So maybe that's where that comes from. I would say, yeah, possibly. And I know that... Um, uh, Dr. Emma Goodall, uh, who's a neurodivergent researcher, is the one, uh, the main author behind that. So it is an extremely valuable uh, resource. Um, and I also know Dr. Wen Lawson um, does a lot of work with the South Australian Department of Education as well. And they are um, neurodivergent themselves. Um, really, I guess my number one is recommendation to, in particular, well, to families and to teachers is, you know, look to those with the lived neurodivergent experience, you know, 
the individuals who are autistic themselves, who are ADHD. Um, and, you know, there are professionals as well, like, you know, like myself. Another one that comes to mind is um, Dr. Siobhan Lamb. I knew you were going to say Siobhan. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. she's been in my head this whole time we've been talking, of course. Yeah. Her and I seem to have a lot in common, actually. You do. On... Yeah. Yeah. You remind me of her a lot. Yes. Yeah. I look forward <laughs> to meeting her one day because I, I haven't yet. Um, and the two organizations that pop into mind, uh, the Autistic Realm Australia, Reframing Autism is another great one. Uh, My Special Child by Rebecca Perkins is great. There, I, I, I gotta say this one, it's Autism Goals School Advocate. Now, I have had the pleasure of working alongside uh, Pauline Aquilina and her team. Um, I have one, definitely one client that we share. Uh, where we are both part of their care team. And I just got to say what Pauline does is amazing. Um, and I am in awe of her. Um, she's, she's helped me uh, as far as with my knowledge as well, learning to, to try and support and advocate. But Pauline was actually a, she's a former school principal, primary school principal. And so, so talk about understanding. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Exactly. They're the people we need to listen to. We need to listen to autistic voices and neurodivergent voices, but also we need to listen to those who have sat in the hot seat of being the person in charge of a school and had to make those decisions. They are so important to understand their perspective. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I know within Pauline's family, there's neurodivergency and, you know, um, so she definitely understands it. That would help. And so she's an amazing mm. advocate and her team, um, I know that it's grown. Obviously, things like Mona Delahook and Beyond Behaviors. I always say if, if, if a child is a school can't, a high anxiety, potential PDAer, um, I always say that's the go-to book that ha- kind of wraps everything up nicely. Uh, Dr. Ross Green, his approach and the explosive child is important. I've done his training, his two or three day training. Um, he's amazing. However, what I think sometimes gets misunderstood is that in order for his approach to follow it um, uh, correctly and for it to have the best benefit, there are a few assumptions that are within that. So one of them is that you already have a trusting relationship with the child. So I was at the training and there was a question asked by a practitioner and and it was very specific. And the first thing that Dr. Ross Green said was, do you have a trusting relationship with this client? And they go, not yet, we're working on it. And it's like, well, you can't do it until you have that. Right, right. So that is very important. And I, I that just stood out in my mind because I'd obviously read the books. And, and, and so there's a few assumptions there. And that's where some of these earlier concepts of interception and co-regulation, you know, all sense, you know, also meeting the sensory needs, you know, all of that foundation needs to be there in order for these collaborative, amazing, innovative approaches that he's created. Another one is Dr. You know, you've just said something really powerful there. I don't think you even realize you've even said that, but to link the the concepts of the interception and the co-regulation 
to how sometimes I guess Ross Green's work can be misunderstood and it needs clarification. That's so important. I think that's such, honestly, because I have recently heard Ross Green being quoted by an ABA therapist. So I don't think that he would be too pleased with that. So yeah, that's right. We have to be careful. We have to really deeply understand actually. And it's a lot of work to have this deep understanding, but if we don't make ourselves link all of those things together you're only skimming the top aren't you absolutely and and it it ties in with the other two um uh i suppose mentors out there that that i'm about to mention so dr stuart shanker and self-reg and understanding um obviously not the very detailed intricacies of polyvagal theory (laughs) by by dr porges because it i love research but it hurts my brain but that's the whole point, isn't it, of why Mona wrote the, her book? Yeah, yeah. But when, when we look at all of these things holistically, and, and so I'm working on, um, I've developed a rough model. It's called the five C's model. Um, and uh, it's about, and, and now it's left my mind, but it's, it's um, connect, collaborate, co-regulate, celebrate, and course the fifth c i can't remember oh, no. um <laughs> five c's before though someone else has told me about i'll look it up and put it in the show notes i'm, I'm sure yeah. i've done i'll give you a link to it and and essentially it is taking that holistic thing and it's looking at all these bits and pieces that you know the research is showing it also this actually came from because i used to get asked because i used to be a, a casual relief teacher who'd go into the very challenging classrooms and so you have to go into the tough, what they call the toughest rooms. I had principals go to me, oh, you're here for that class. Great. Your goal today is to keep everyone in the class. Uh, sorry, keep everyone on school and everybody safe. And then you know what kind of day you're in for. And so, so I, I was able to use these five C's. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But, but when I thought back and analyzed, this was my approach to how I would go in, how I would quickly connect as, as quickly as you can as a casual teacher. And also I was very used to, you know, I walk in and chairs are being thrown, you know, swearing and people are getting, you know, aggressive because I've, I'm the uh, disruption, you know, I'm the problem, the poor children. <laughs> but anyway, so, so it's how I would help to de-escalate that and support them so we could get through the day and and it's an approach that incorporates everything from um you know laying the foundation and then being able to also incorporate these other things and at the center of it all is connection and and that is the that is the center and everything else uh such as meeting their basic needs uh meeting their sensory needs you know collaborating with them you know if you have that connection and thinking about top down versus bottom up using compassion all of that it's it's all in there but the the center is connection right okay fascinating oh that's really good is there anything else that you'd like to add the other thing i'd like to say for parents is in going back a little bit in relation to advocating i want parents to understand that Unfortunately, they need to be prepared for it. Um, I want them to understand that if their child gets a diagnosis, um, it is a signpost and it is a 
label that is intended to provide protection through the Disability Discrimination Act education standards, please read it and understand it. Always any communication with a school, always do it in writing, preferably email, um, and request a response in writing. Let them know that's your preferred mode of communication, that you do not wish to engage on the phone, that you want to either have minuted notes in a meeting or communication via email. And do not, like always push, trust that mom intuition. If something doesn't feel right, push for more answers. This is not all schools, okay? I, I love schools, this is not all of them, but you know, in my personal experience, I have seen parents bullied. I, as, I was lied to flat-faced by one of my, a school that my kids were involved in. And I looked at them and I said, you forgot what I do, don't you? And, and they had. I think. And, and so, you know, don't be intimidated. Don't take bullying and you don't have to do it alone. You can get an advocate. You are entitled to one and, and, and make sure, yeah, reach out if they need support. It's a tough job, but it's what we have to do. What fantastic way to finish off our chat today. Thank you so much, Christina. That's, um, I knew you were going to be good. Oh, thank you. Awesome. So thank you. That's, that's really excellent. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'll sign us off now. Just hang on there for a minute. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, bye. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.